and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm Medea Ocher, the managing editor of the LA Review of Books, and I am alone in the studio today, here to solely introduce a conversation with Porchista Kakpur, author of the recent memoir, Sick. I was joined by Kate Wolf, our editor-at-large, or one of them, and we talked to Porchista about her book, her struggles with Lyme disease, her recent downturn and how she felt visiting Los Angeles and the horrible pollution in the air here. And it's an interesting conversation about bodies, sickness, the way that society treats women who are sick. And it was a pleasure to talk to Porchista. So let's get to the conversation. Today we have Porchista Kakpur on the show with us. Porchista is the author of Suns and Other Flammable Objects and The Last Illusion, two critically acclaimed novels. Her most recent book is Sick, a memoir, which chronicles her fight with Lyme disease. Porchista, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. So, one, I think we should mention to listeners that you are wearing an oxygen mask. Yeah, this is it's a nasal cannula, part of my portable oxygen concentrator. So, yeah. So if they hear a little puffing sound, yeah, that's what that is. It's on a pulse meter. So yeah, that little puff is just me getting oxygen on a day in LA where we need quite a lot of oxygen. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, today has just been brutal for me and yesterday a little bit too. And it's just like, you know, I was raised in the east side. I'm staying in the east side. It's like the area I'm most familiar with, but I think I'm going to have to relocate over to the west side tonight and the next couple days because I just... It breaks my heart. I'm a total East Side girl, but I can't do the East Side anymore. Mm-hmm. It's just too polluted. And and in this allergy season, too, mm-hmm. it's just, like, just unbearable. I was thinking that we could start just by, for listeners who don't know the symptoms of Lyme disease, maybe you could tell us a little bit about them. Like, what are the most common symptoms? And why does it seem like people have such a hard time getting diagnosed with Lyme? Yeah, so Lyme disease, it really varies from person to person, which is part of your second question, why it's so hard to get diagnosed, because it manifests a little differently in everybody. So you have the disease itself, and it's their co-infections. And so, like, in a case like mine, I have, like, a CDC-level Lyme. You know, it's pretty, like, unequivocally Lyme, and it's, for viewers who know, it's, like, or for listeners who know, it's bands, like, 23 and 41. And I also have a co-infection or lichia, and then my Bartonella and Babesia look somewhat strong, but they're not as unequivocal as the rest. So basically, for most people, Lyme manifests as like joint pain, flu-like symptoms, dysautonomic symptoms, which are big ones for me, like low blood pressure, high blood pressure, fast heart rate, low heart rate, temperature dysregulation, and things like that. Also, for me and a lot of people, the first symptoms are often psychiatric because it goes for a lot of soft tissues. So depression, anxiety, insomnia are really, really common. Gastrointestinal issues. I mean, you name it. It's basically like if you present a whole host of super weird symptoms, if you find you're telling your doctor, like, I get electric shocks on the right side of my body or I can't move the left side of my face or I feel like, you know, my body is on fire. Like today I felt like my whole face was just burning so like paresthesia neuropathy stuff some people have hallucinations auditory and visual luckily I have only had that very rarely you know it's a whole host of things I mean I have like 
been struggling with insomnia and dysphagia have been my most uncomfortable ones in this period and historically. Mm-hmm. And is it something that you take antibiotics? How do you treat it? I mean, it's never curable. Well, if you have acute Lyme, it is curable. So acute Lyme just means like you test positive for Lyme immediately and then you see the bullseye rash, hopefully, and you take antibiotics within like a few days or a week. And that's usually doxycycline and you can be rid of it. It actually is quite curable if you catch it within a window of time. The problem is most people can't catch it within that window of time. And there's even some ideas now with stronger strains that maybe even doing that won't be enough anyways. So then you have something called chronic Lyme or what I call late stage Lyme. There's like, I forget what the acronym now stands for, but there's like post-treatment Lyme to PTL, LS, I forget. Yeah, (laughs) forgetting things, brain fog is a big (laughs) Lyme symptom. But yeah, so then when it goes into these longer stages, like for me, it just didn't get treated for years and years and years. And then you have all this other systemic damage. And so I have things like being both insulin resistant as well as hypoglycemic, which is a mess. Like no one knows what to do with that. Or, you know, having unusual cardiac and neurological, like the structure of my heart is like perfect. Like in an ultrasound of my heart, you don't see any problems. You see actually a very healthy heart. But the neurological input to my heart actually creates all sorts of weird things so that like you know I was in the last year I've been in hospitals various times where my heart rate is like extremely high whereas often it's extremely low so yeah it's a network of really messy baffling symptoms and yeah so and the book seems potentially like some kind of way to get a handle on the messiness of the sickness So I want to talk about how you managed to do it. And I think you reflect upon it in the book, too, where you say, I seem to be paying attention to settings a lot. Or men. Mm -hmm. So there are ways in which I think the book helps you get a grasp on this otherwise really unfamiliar thing. So will you talk a little bit about how did you start the process of writing this? Yeah, well, I, geez, I never really thought I would write this book. It was not really a project that you would have said would have ever interested me. I didn't want to write a full-length memoir ever. And so I was sure that I would just write essays and articles like for a while, I'm sure. Even that essays that tie into books I never really wanted to do. But this was like a book that after years and years of sharing my experience, whether undiagnosed or fully diagnosed on social media, in sharing my experience, people actually reached out to me and wanted me to write this book. Mm -hmm. And so that's where it kind of came about. And then in writing the book, it sort of was like, felt like a mystery novel in a way where I was trying to figure out for myself, like, where did I actually get this? And then in facing like PTSD and other things that come into the conversation when you're treating Lyme, I had to think like, what other factors in my life made it hard to make me better? Because every single person who comes with a disease like this, or really any chronic illness, also has these other factors in their life that should come into play. And hopefully you're with a doctor, you could be comfortable discussing that, not a doctor who gaslights you and immediately thinks, oh, you're crazy, oh, you had, oh, you were raped, or oh, you went to war, so that's why, you know, that's not the right framing. The framing is that, like, how do those things contribute to stress? You know, what are all the stressors? Stressors that are involved. Yeah. I talked to a doctor recently who said, 
a part of him thinks like everybody has Lyme these days now. It's so widespread. But what is it that turns it on, mm-hmm. you know, that actually causes the body to sort of the immune system to f- sort of fail and the body to try to sort of destroy itself and coping with it? Uh-huh. Where is he thinking that it was an outside source that would that someone had to have undergone like an excessive amount of trauma to have that kind of chronic illness ignited or I mean that traumas can be everything from like psychological trauma to like environmental toxins or like chemicals like being in a space where people are using like all sorts of agents with ammonia and things like that I mean when I do those blood tests that most people don't do you see all sorts of things you know Mm -hmm. and so all of those operate like environmental toxins or even like global turmoil or like whatever it is that stressors on your body will make it worse so it's like I think part of the reason I haven't been more bedridden in my life is that I had some sense of or some coping mechanisms for a certain type of resilience if that makes sense that kind of helped me gather myself but this last relapse has been very tricky because I had mold, lead, asbestos, all that stuff to deal with on top of a Lyme relapse. And so it was especially treacherous. Well, something I think that's so interesting in the book is that you don't necessarily start off the narrative as a well person who then gets sick. We kind of enter in media res where you, you know, posit yourself as someone who's always been sick in some way, who's never felt comfortable in your body. So most narratives of illness have a kind of before and they have an after and then they have you know mm-hmm. the happy ending and this book doesn't really have that structure so I'm wondering how you decided to tell it you know I would think it would be kind of difficult if you don't have that simple three-act structure to figure out how to tell this story yeah just kind of a large epic story of many different times where you have not been well I think there's, I mean, that, you know, as someone who's, you know, written other books and teaches creative writing, I know the three-act structure you're talking about, but I don't really believe in it. I think it's so false, right? And it's false in sort of a pretty way, maybe you could say. It's a fairy tale. But it's also just, like, infuriating in another way because it's like, you know, there are some illnesses, I guess, that people recover from. But the vast majority of chronic illness, it comes and goes and manifests in different ways and things like that so I think the book that I tried to sell originally was like that book that was like and now I'm well and you can be too (laughs) but that's I'm glad I didn't write that book and in fact I find myself wishing that I could write this chapter into the book too because there's certain lessons I've learned here you know for instance I am now very gluten-free and very like paying more attention to my diet which I'd been really bad about at times, you know, I sort of prided myself on like going into like remission from Lyme and eating whatever I wanted, mm-hmm. you know, drinking a beer or having a cigarette, you know, and now I really, really don't think I can ever do that again. So it's actually like it was a really hard book to write because in some ways, at one point I felt I wasn't in it. Then I felt like I was in it again because I had this concussion. So the beginning act or the beginning sort of like prologue was something that was added later. And then that actually made me write a lot of it differently then because it was, I ended up scrapping a ton of it after I got the concussion. And going into concussion therapy at NYU Concussion Center on top of dealing with a Lyme relapse, which was the worst challenge so of my and, life. And maybe you could just say for listeners who haven't read the book, how did you get the concussion? 
Yeah, so I was driving home from a school I taught at, Bard College, which is one of your interns here who I just saw is was my student. At Bard College, I was driving home on a Friday night shortly after the Paris attacks, and I'd actually stayed late to help a lot of students who were really depressed and scared. And I was hit by an 18-wheeler on the New York State Thruway. And so... It was terrifying. I didn't even really understand it was a concussion until much later. And yeah, my dog had pulmonary contusions. I had a pretty severe concussion that had really intense vestibular symptoms. And already just a couple like weeks or so before that, I was feeling like I was maybe having a Lyme relapse. And I'd just gotten to the point where I was like on my proper supplements and I was feeling like I could drive again. And then I got hit by... (laughs) by a car, a big truck. So one of the things that you had mentioned before were the stressors that combine to trigger something like Lyme, yeah. right? That maybe everybody has it, but certain bodies react to things, react to events in different ways. So one thing I did want to talk about briefly and that you do start with is also where you come from, the initial trauma of the Iranian revolution and your understanding that I think develops throughout the book, really, of how that initial, you know, how those initial years affect you now. Yeah, I think it's something that a lot of people talk about, that if in the first few years of your life, I think it's like your birth to like age three, if you experience significant trauma, it really has a potent effect on your immune system going forward. And that has was certainly the case with me. I mean, I, I didn't even share a lot of it with my parents, you know. My mom is sitting here in the studio in she the back. Is. But like I would like at night tremble and have these weird electrical things that I don't even know what if it's vaguely related to seizure disorders or what. Mm-hmm. I would have those all the time. Or, you know, my mom once caught me out of a shower fainting basically and or fainting really and then we found out I had a prolapsed mitral valve and I was often had my hands were shaking I was often too thin I I don't think they did proper tests on me being anemic or not but I was pretty certainly anemic then I had a lot of problems physically and also psychologically I was really prone to like a lot of depression and anxiety so Mm. looking back now do you wonder if you were I guess the way the book is told, as I was mentioning, you know, it's not just the Lyme isolated because you don't realize you have Lyme till much later in the narrative. So yeah. when you look back on your kind of grappling with different forms of illness, how do you see, you know, your past in relation to your kind of current status as someone who's, you know, categorically chronically ill? Well, that was the funny thing. Like, I didn't know how connected they all were. And sometimes Lyme doctors try to do that investigation with you. And again, you have to trust them. And so that was, you know, because again, you don't want to feel like so much of the undiagnosed and misdiagnosed part of my story is being gaslighted by doctors who just feel like you're like a crazy person and all your problems are emotional. But when you get to a proper doctor, you can actually look back on that and understand how past trauma can come into play. I mean, a lot of the Lyme treatments in themselves can be very intense and even dangerous in some ways, but also for the fact that they bring back a lot of past trauma. So it's not unusual for someone with serious Lyme or who's in treatment for it to have really almost like violent flashbacks to stressors in their life. Mm -hmm. And so 
I had to look back on a lot of that and think, is it related? Was it not? I mean, there's some simple things, too. Like, I remember being with my family and hiking. You know, Iranians always like being out in the the woods and picnics and such. And I remember seeing a sign that said something about Lyme disease. And the only reason I remember that sign is because English was my second language. And I thought L-I-M-E was misspelled. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I saw this was like a disease that had to do with a fruit. And so I just remember asking my parents, why, what is that? They don't, you know, no one knew. It wasn't like, I mean, it was certainly on the East Coast. By the time I was a young person, they talked about it. But in California, at least in our circles in the 80s and 90s, no one was really talking about Lyme disease. And so I just barely ever thought of it. Even when I went to school at 18 on the East Coast, I barely ever thought of it. There were so many things to worry about. That was like the last thing on my mind to worry about. Right. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from KPFK Studios. We've been talking to Porchista Kakpur, author of Sick, a memoir. We'll return to that conversation in a moment, but now, this week's book recommendation. We're excited to have Medea Ocher, LARB's managing editor, with us in the studio today to give this week's book recommendation. So, Medea, what book are you recommending? This is a book I finally got around to reading recently, and it's Autumn by Ali Smith. Ali Smith is a Scottish writer. She has been writing a series of novels around the seasons. So winter has already come out. Autumn, I think, came out a few years ago. And Autumn is a novel about an old man who's in a home, and he's sometimes in a dream state, very rarely lucid, and a young woman who grew up next door to him. The young woman is now a professor, and she is visiting the home and reading to him out loud, and it sort of goes in and out of both of their minds. The sort of dream state of the man who is in a coma and where he's sleeping, it's a kind of unclear what state he's in, in her mind as she is sort of just sitting next to him. She's not really caretaking, but she's nearby and thinking about the relationship that they had when she was a girl. Okay, so it's kind of melancholy then, I guess. It's very melancholy, and it's it's a beautiful book. It's very poetic. It's very lyrical. It goes from dream state to dream state, but it includes these really funny sort of small interactions that people have with bureaucracy, that people experience with the difficulties of sort of getting next to the people they love at times <laughs> um, and the sheer difficulty of making that happen. But also this very sweet relationship that develops between this older man and this little girl who doesn't really have that much guidance. And he sort of takes her up and teaches her about art and teaches her about books. And she's mourning him and mourning his near death. Okay. It's an uplifting tale. But it's tale. still uplifting. Yeah. Yes. Okay, Dea, can you give us the title and author one more time, please? Yes. The book is called Autumn, and it's by Allie Smith. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Great. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, and now back to our interview with Patista Kakpoor, author of Sick, a memoir. 
there comes a point, I think, in the book where you seem to locate that incident as a sort of, and I forget what your doctor calls it, an originary, it's like an originary tale or something. But Yeah, like an origin story. An origin story yeah. of where you might have gotten this thing. But that is another part of it that I think seems to sort of elude you in telling the story, which is it has no beginning, really. It has no end, <laughs> as as Kate was saying, and it, but it, it really doesn't have a beginning. And so it you're sort of still floating around yeah. in it, even though you might have located that one particular moment where perhaps it, it, that was the origin. Yeah. And does it, you know, and I think the, the book also asked the question, you know, does it matter? You know, at a certain point right. you're, you talk to someone who says, I think it's your acupuncturist who says, does it matter what, what it is? You know, yeah. do it, does it even need a name, what the sickness is? But then at the same time, you know, one might argue that it, of course it matters, that it's not some abstract illness. It's a true illness that's just under-researched um, yeah. and, un- and not very well understood. I'm, I'm wondering how your, either in writing the book or just through your treatment, how is your ideas of like being a patient, being a patient in America in particular, maybe, um, and dealing with all that, the way doctors talk to patients, how has that changed for your evolved? Like what, what, how do you think of illness now? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I mean, it's been frustrating cause I've been back to like a lot of medical, um, care. And I think the desire of most people with these types of illnesses is actually to stay out of medical care, even though it presents the opposite, like, because you can't constantly have to chase doctors and get more tests, and it's a mess. Sorry, I lost the thread of what you were... Oh, I I guess just how are you thinking about illness these days? Yeah, Yeah, um, it's, I mean, as I see so many sick people at my events and things like that, and people that you'd think look fine, you know, and look healthy, and don't seem to present any problems. I've been just floored by how many people are ill in this country and are dealing with it and struggling with it. And um, it it really hasn't changed my own view of it, but what's just scary for me is like thinking how easily I can be back to like the worst stages of my illness. I know for me, a big problem is like, I am not able to rest. And, you know, my lifestyle is pretty stressful sometimes. Even now, when it's like less work than usual, I'm just bad at resting because resting even with an illness like this is very tricky. Like there has to be someone who brings you water, brings you juice, might need to help you to get to the restroom or help you make decisions. So people will just be like annoyed at me and say like, come on, snap out of it. You can do this. But like, I can't, I'm trying my best. I, you know, a shower is like a very intense thing for someone with Lyme. Yeah. At one point in the book, you mentioned that you cut your hair because one of the things that you were just couldn't do anymore was just wash your hair in the shower. You were too exhausted to even do that. Yeah. I've had to, um, I I did like straightening because I couldn't like you know, I couldn't manage my natural, very curly, thick hair. And now I've just sort of like let it go. And luckily I don't have to wash it that often, but it's like, that's a big, big issue. Like being in the shower for like a period of time. And, uh, like if I was off antibiotics right now, which I am sometimes, you know, I go on and off them. I would probably just be having like severe panic disorder. Mm -hmm. Like, and that's how, you know, by the way, it's like Lyme, you know, like I, 
I have been on many psychiatric meds, and they have not really worked for me. But when I take doxycycline, it stops panic disorder for me. That's so interesting. Hey, you could talk a little bit about the journey to your diagnosis. Um, How much time did you spend sick, wondering what was wrong? Um, Sounds like from the book that uh, most of your 20s. Well, in my 20s, I actually didn't search that much for it. When I was in college and stuff, I was just like, you know, drinking and smoking, doing whatever. I didn't care that I felt off. I didn't live in a tidy way. No, none of my friends did. We were all messes, you know, and like we just, it was like very like 90s to feel bad and like <laughs> to be pale and ailing and sick. That was part of the aesthetic of that, 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 that decade that we sometimes glamorize, but I think has a lot of problems, you know. I was just like happy that I wasn't like one of the people that I met, one of the many people I knew who died of drug overdoses or, or suicide. I mean, that was like the dark side there. But by the end of my 20s, sort of what a lot of people would call Saturn's return, right? That was when I really hit a lot of problems in 2006 when I was about 29. And that was when I hit like a dead end. And it was also around the time I got my first book deal. And it just, I came back home to see my parents that summer in 2006 and I was not normal. I like no longer could access sleep. It was almost like this instant thing. I didn't know how to sleep. And no one knew what to do with me. It was like months and months and months of doctors. I mean, I went to a very psychiatric route. I went to saw gastroenterologists. I saw endocrinologists, neurologists, like you name it. And they didn't know what to do with me. And even prior to that, my mom had come to see me in um, Chicago when I was very, very off too. But we again didn't think there was anything physically wrong. There seemed to be something like mentally off with me maybe. Again, my lifestyle was not a neat and tidy lifestyle, right? But in 2006, we kind of let that go. And I don't, I'm still amazed that I sort of survived that. It, it, I mean, I, it didn't get better exactly. I had a partner and he and I like just ate very healthy for years, but I had weird episodes with him too. And like at one point, like had this strange, like autoimmune thyroiditis thing that I had like a high fever for one month in Brooklyn and didn't have insurance. No one knew what to do with it. Yeah. That went, was let go for a while because I didn't have health insurance either. And then I finally got a university health insurance and it was like And that was when I lived in rural Pennsylvania, which is a high Lyme area. And then they found Lyme for the first time in 2009. And I thought I had treated it after a few months going by an infectious disease doctor's orders. And lo and behold, 2012, um, I'm a fellow in Germany. And, you know, again, some chaotic things in my life, like a breakup with an ex-fiance. So I didn't take it too seriously. But... I suddenly was realizing I would go running and my heart rate wouldn't go down. Something was really wrong with my heart rate. Then there was something wrong with my blood sugar. Then, oh my God, there was maybe something wrong with my thyroid. Like everything started coming up at these various tests. And like the other thing is like I ignored so much. Like I had been a professor in Germany, but even on the flight there, I have all these pilar cysts on my head and one of them had turned into an abscess. And I'd sort of been like, okay, whatever. We'll just deal with that there. And, And we dealt with that. But it was like weeks and weeks of wound cleaning and nobody knew what on earth had happened that my immune system would have let a burst cyst turn into like an abscess. So again, it like sort of takes writing this book and looking back and being like, whoa, what the hell has gone on here? I'm now 40 and that was like my 30s is a real mess of this stuff. And even like 
And many times I just stopped the medical research. Like, there's a lot of n- things that happen to me now that I don't even know what they'd be called. But it's because I didn't go to those extra five doctors that could have given me that name or I didn't go to the Mayo Clinic. I sort of said, like, okay, let's just, like, stick to this and that's enough. But there could be new stuff all the time. There's, that's something I wanted to ask you about, too, is that I think something that happens and that I've seen happen mostly with my female friends, really, is that they are forced to become the experts in their own illness yes. right? and the experts in their own bodies because there's nobody else who will do it for them. And hearing you rattle off, sort of off the top of your head, all of these different terms, diseases, illnesses, bacteria, it's kind of incredible. I mean, it seems like you've been forced essentially to do the same thing. Yeah, exactly. It drives everybody crazy, and including myself, but there's no other way. Um, I do it less than a lot of my friends. I was talking to a friend on the phone today who, like, you know, has self-diagnosed almost all her issues. And I still have slightly traditionalist views where I want an MD to, like, really do that investigation before I, like, go on that journey. But I have to say I do really, like, try to encourage people to have a proper medical opinion before they go down the wrong route because, like, so many of these supplements that you can just take that just look like vitamins, I mean, they can cause pretty adverse reactions too. Mm -hmm. So it's good to have somebody that you trust who can oversee this. But, yeah, I totally get, like, why people have had to do that. It's, like, it's terrifying, and it's, like, there's there's no real support. Why do you think in the book you write, and I think I've seen articles to this effect as well, that you know chronic illnesses are often underdiagnosed and, and they often um, affect women more than men, and possibly because of that, they're you know women are not taken seriously. Yeah. Um, why why do you think? And in the book, there's a time I think where you're accompanied by a man a boyfriend to a doctor and he's the one who's communicating with the doctor and they're like believing him and he you know this sturdy guy is like your interlocutor and that's yeah. serving you well why don't you think women on their own in the medical system why do they have such a hard time being believed about their symptoms yeah it's a major major problem um i was just telling someone to i mean the book also my editor comes with me once to the er and he was very much he was original editor on this book and he was like very much a like glasses and blazer type of guy you know big white guy and I I often joke like not even just any white guy will do (laughs) it has to be like the type of white guy that looks like you know like acceptable to the to the machine and so yeah I mean I think it should be no surprise to anyone that we live in a very sexist society and that this is just like a mess, basically, how people deal with um, people with chronic illness, and especially women. And I mean, the, the misogyny is rampant. And, and, and then the other problem is, my friend, the filmmaker, Cindy Anderson, who was in conversation with me, said yesterday, like, there's also the issue of hormones, you know, and the fact that we have more complex machinery as women. But uh, so, that, so that's an interesting issue. I mean, yeah. on the one hand, I feel like God, that is true. Like, I have, like, one week a month sometimes when I feel, like, normal and don't have to deal with it. On the other hand, the other thing is, like, there's things that are, like, deeper than hormonal stuff that they can actually look at that have nothing to do with us being women or not. It's just, like, that PTSD issue. Like, I'm not going to deny it 
that it's it's there and it's a really relevant part of chronic illness treatment. But at the same time, I'll be defensive about it if it's like the wrong doctor. Mm-hmm. So you also need like doctors who are like able to understand us, our bodies, and then hear our input and and hear how we like work with their input too. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's so right now you're obviously in Los Angeles in, in the studio with us, but. In the book, you go back and forth to different locations. You go to New York, Los Angeles, Germany, as you had mentioned earlier. And in each location, you sort of anticipate wellness or anticipate sickness, illness. Um, and sometimes it's the other way around. And But each location seems to mean something to you. And sometimes it means something physical, too, which is yeah. you know probably not how most people will deal with going to a new city. Um, right. Do you still think of these places in in the same way? Do you think of New York and mm. Los Angeles in the same way as you did then? Uh, Los Angeles always breaks my heart because I want it to be a place where I could find some comfort. Um, right now, you know, my family's here. My dog is here. You know, like almost some of my best friends are here. And a lot of my New York friends have moved here. But, like, the thing is, like, this, like, on a day like this where you have this level of pollution, it's, you know, really hard. I mean, I don't know how to get better here i i guess if you live like in venice or malibu or some but but you know malibu's full of people with lime too so there's like like that that (laughs) trade-off right i don't know so it's and there's mold there like by the water too Uh so you it's like a baffling trade-off there so i i have sort of warmer feelings than i did in the book Uh, la is often where i get the sickest but new what's interesting is new my new york feelings have really changed since even the book's been out because oh. it was uh, long after I'd finished my edits on it that like my apartment in New York was just gone through this horrific situation where we had illegal demolition to units above and next door and part of my ceiling collapsed in my bathroom and so you had asbestos lead oh, no. mold too I mean from a 140 year old building that had never been really renovated and so now when I go back to New York, it's really hard for me to enjoy it. I mean, I, I will always love New York. Like, that will always be my favorite city, but I don't know how to live there anymore. I don't know how to feel safe there anymore. And um, all of these places that I'm talking about, there's ways to feel safe and happy and whatever in them if you're wealthy enough to live in, a, like, a perfect bubble and have, like, high-tech air purifiers and the perfect bedding and the all organic clothes and I don't know whatever whatever else but for me it's really hard to imagine Santa Fe is a place where I get well in the book and mm-hmm. it is a place I often return to for medical treatment and the um but you know it's funny like there there's the altitude issue is a little bit of an issue but the biggest right. problem is that I didn't know they had mold there too it's incredible that it's dry yeah it's really dry but the apparently the old adobes like lock in some mold too so i i don't know i mean the goal is with lyme treatment says as much of chronic illness therapy is to get your immune system so that it doesn't freak out when it's like exposed to these things so and you know i'm not well yet but i'm a little bit better than i was a few months ago with that a few months ago i couldn't even walk into like any new environment it felt so horrific and shocking and I could smell everything and, you know. Wow. Something you write about in the book um, is the toll that illness takes on close relationships um, with your family and then 
like their romantic partners in the book, they're a succession of men who either kind of don't believe you or can't be there for you or who are either your champions and caretaking for you, but that seems that it can drastically turn. Yeah. That they suddenly, you know, display their own needs um, for for care, whatever, maybe yeah. because they have their own problems or... Yeah. I, I, I just wonder how how difficult has that been? I, know, I think it's something you write about really honestly in the book, you know, maintaining close relationships when you yourself are feeling so bad. Yeah, it's a big problem. I mean, I think like a constant in my life has been like people who were really into um, being my partner when they felt like I was really well. And then the minute I felt sick, like they were like, oh, whoa. Like, I'm out. I mean, I think men are very scared. It's a stereotype, of course. Men are scared of needles, scared of illness, and they often need to be taken care of in a certain way. And I've met fewer men that are good caretakers. Um, there are people not mentioned in the book that were good to me and were functional, but I, I chose to write on the things that the, the lessons we can learn. And I often stumbled into relationships with people that were, like, really um, not healthy partners mostly because they were like very fair weathered Mm -hmm. and I mean this happened to me even just this year and that's the thing I always tell people when I first date them that like uh, you know I have this illness and I can get really sick at a certain point and just don't be scared I've had to go to hospitals a lot and things like that and then they're like oh yeah that's no problem and then it happens Mm -hmm. and they're like whoa I can't handle this and so it's just gutting to me I, that's why I actually kind of hope that I can like meet someone when I'm actually sick rather than well right. because yeah. I'd rather they like know this and you know right and feel it and this is something that I had written about but you know with sick bodies that they m- they make these demands on the people around them oh, yeah. that are otherwise I think unacknowledged you know yeah. um, and so it can be very difficult because you do need things from people, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I yeah. always feel like today, one of the things that's been plaguing me is it's like my mom's birthday and I still need her to like help me with things. And I feel like I was being like irrational and annoying. And I feel like, you know, even like camera from people or my friends or everybody, it's just, like I'm so incredibly needy and I'm so ex- expensive too. <laughs> like I have to eat all this food and distilled water and like oh, the water's got to have salt in it because my blood pressure, you know, it's, I exhaust myself all the time. Right. And I am just like, this is like just too much. Like, come on, like, just stop being like this. But at the same time, like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to, you know. Yeah, the the process would be better if you have like a live-in like caretaker. But also like the other thing with the disease is like strangers are not necessarily comforting to me. They don't have a context of me or my life or anything. So you end up leaning a lot on the people that love you. And it just, it's a really hard thing for me to watch them getting stressed out or them like suffering because of this. How are you, uh, how are you dealing with the publication of the book? You know, it's been, it's, it's been a lot to keep track of. I was really trying to get off the internet and not be so active, but you know, of course they want you to be on the internet and be active. And I've, and I've always been on the internet, so it wasn't a stretch, but, um, you know, it's been really, like, overwhelming, but also, like, exciting because people have really responded well to the book and much better than I thought. 
Um, so that's been pretty nice. What did you What did you expect? Why? I just didn't know if anyone would care about a book like this. And I, I've historically had pretty bad sales. I've been critically <laughs> acclaimed, but I've no one's really bought my books, uh, uh, or, you know, in spite of some press. So doing these readings and not being able to really promote them, but then seeing like huge crowds and it's, it's been kind of amazing. So yeah, it's been great. It, it's just like hard because I'm just like at any given point, I don't know if I can keep going mm-hmm. and like, maybe I have to just go get like more therapies and get better. <laughs> so it's like really hard for me. Anytime I walk into a space, it feels like a little bit of a risk. Like, can I do it? How can I cope? And so, like, you know, just thinking about, like, can I do dinner tonight? Can I, you know, h- how will I fall asleep tonight? Or what should I take? Or do I report this symptom to my doctor? You know, it's it's just, like, a lot of stuff. And then to toss in, like, also, like, having a book and doing a tour and, and doing all this, it's, it's a lot. But at the same time, like, I don't do terribly well in isolation. And so as I get older and older, I'm more of a pack animal and... and and less inclined to want to hide and be by myself, which I used to love. And so like being among people when I'm doing events or, or being interviewed, it's actually in some ways like a joy. It's better than what was happening to me for many months when I was just like in denial and alone and scared. Yeah. So. Well, thanks so much for taking the, the risk to, to talk to us today. No, thank you. you. This, yeah, you can tell like something is safe when you walk in and one thing that's been nice, I think the people that are attracted to doing stuff with this work or even just receiving me are generally like empathic and kind. So I, I keep so. thinking like I'm going to walk into a room and everyone's going to be mad at me and like, <laughs> oh, I'm late or like, and then everyone's like really kind because I guess, you know, they've read the book and they understand. So yeah. that's been really nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. So thank you. Thank you for being so understanding and patient and kind. Thank you for writing an, uh, a wonderful book. Thank you. And for coming to the show. Yeah, thank you thank so much. You. And happy birthday to your mom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've been speaking with Porchista Kakpur, author of Sick, a memoir. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. Thank you.